Annual 7, verses 9 to 14. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And then Revelation chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book 
and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash round his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. And the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Our God and Father, we thank you that you have spoken to us through the scriptures. And we ask now that as we spend time thinking about those scriptures together, that you would give us ears to hear, to listen to your voice, and so to be changed, changed in our understanding of you, of who you are, and changed to look more like you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, knowing what is going to happen in the future can shape how you live in the present. Think, for example, of warning systems for natural disasters. They tell you what is just about to hit. And you'd be a fool to hear a tornado alarm, for example, and to carry on with life as normal, wouldn't you? No, you'd get yourself to the safest place you possibly could. Knowing the future can shape how you live in the present. And in fact, it isn't just knowing the future that can shape how we live. Even rightly understanding the present can shape how we live. Think, for example, of a man called Hiro Onoda. Now, Onoda was an officer in the Japanese army during World War II who was stationed on an island in the Philippines. The war ended in 1945, and leaflets were airdropped over the island over the coming months and years, announcing that the war was over. But despite receiving the leaflets and reading the leaflets, Onoda refused to trust them. He dismissed them as enemy propaganda. And so Onoda remained on an active war footing. He was still fighting the Second World War as far as he believed it. And he was mounting guerrilla attacks in the Philippines until 1974. 29 years 
after the end of the war. And he did all of that because he refused to believe reality, things as they really were, that the war was over. Knowing what is about to happen can shape how we live, and even rightly understanding the present can shape how we live. And the reason that I begin with that this evening is that that is one of the biggest driving principles behind the book of Revelation. Rightly understanding the present and knowing the future shapes how you live in the here and now. Let me say that again. Rightly understanding the present and knowing the future shapes how you live in the here and now. Now, as Robin mentioned, we're going to be thinking about the opening chapters of the book of Revelation together over the next three Sunday evenings. It was written, we're told, in chapter one to seven churches, seven real-life churches in what is modern-day Turkey. And chapters two and three are a clutch of personally addressed letters to each of those seven churches. We'll be looking at those on Tuesday evenings at Summerlink, again, as Robin mentioned. And those letters show that the churches lived in turbulent times. They faced persecution. They had to contend with false teaching. And they faced the temptation to capitulate morally, to live like the world around them was living. But although each of them faced slightly different pressures, for all of the churches that John writes to, his objective is the same. In fact, if you have a Bible open in front of you, it might help you just to see that. I won't have you hopping around all over the place this evening, I promise. But if you just turn the page, if you need to do so, to chapter 2, verse 7, and have a look at the last sentence of chapter 2, verse 7. Simple five words. To the one who conquers, writes John. He says the same thing for each church through chapters 2, and three, to the one who conquers. John writes what he writes in Revelation so that these churches would conquer, that they would overcome the obstacles they face, and they would keep going right to the end. And what is it that these local churches need to know to keep them going, to keep them faithful amid all those tribulations? Well, we read it a moment or two ago. Verse 19 of chapter 1, John is commanded by the resurrected Jesus Christ. Verse 19, write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. A right understanding of the things that are, what's really going on in the here and now, and a right understanding of the things that are to take place, what is really going to happen in the future. Those are the resources that God thinks they need to conquer to make it to the end. Now that's the driving principle behind the book of Revelation and that's how it applied for each of these seven churches in first century Turkey. But it's worth asking whether Revelation has anything to say to us in 21st century Scotland or whether we're just flying a theological kite for three Sunday evenings during the summer holidays. It, well, it's, it's quite a common illustration for preachers and commentators to say that we should approach Revelation like we have steamed open someone else's mail. Now, that might make sense for 
I guess, some generations of folks watching, for perhaps those a little bit younger, let's update the illustration a bit. We're peering over someone else's shoulder to read their emails. We're reading something that wasn't really meant for us. You might have heard that before. And that illustration has the added benefit of making everything feel a bit more exciting and clandestine. It's a bit like, well, you're a fake mustache away from being a Cold War spy. But actually, that isn't the way we're meant to read Revelation at all. It was written for the benefit of seven real-life churches, but it was written for our benefit too. And John tells us as much. In each of the letters to those churches in chapters 2 and 3, there's a repeated refrain, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We are explicitly copied in. And so what those seven churches needed to know about the present and the future, if they were to overcome, we need to know about the present and the future if we are to overcome. Now, all of that is by way of relatively brief introduction to the book of Revelation, and it's hopefully relatively clear so far, but it might sound a bit vague. Knowing the present and knowing the future might make sense in principle, but what is it in particular about the present and the future we might need to understand? Well, the, book's chapter, uh, the book is, is 22 chapters long, and you'll be relieved to know that I'm not planning on tackling it all this evening. But that structure maps itself onto the first chapter of Revelation. Because in Revelation 1, we find out something of what God would have us know about the future in verses 1 to 9. And then we find out something of what he would have us know about the present in verses 9 to 20. So let's spend some time thinking about that together now. I should mention there are headings on the back of the service sheet. The service sheet is on a link on the YouTube channel. You might find it helpful to have those open in front of you as we go along. Firstly, verses 1 to 9. Jesus will return soon in glory and in judgment. Now, my guess is that for any of us who've dipped into Revelation before, it may well be a book that we've, um, we've swiftly, dipped, swiftly dipped back out of. It's one we would perhaps choose to avoid quite often. And that might be for a couple of reasons. It might partly be because of the content. Because it's full of numbers, for example, of sevens and of twelves and of twenty-fours and 144,000s. And there are scenes involving confusing kind of things. There are dragons and beasts and horns. Or perhaps it's not quite so much the content we're put off by. Perhaps we're put off because Revelation seems to be the natural habitat of the Christian conspiracy theorist. So any sect worth its salt is usually built around a charismatic individual armed with a wacky interpretation of the book of Revelation. And all of that means that when I've mentioned to one or two folks that I'm going to be speaking on Revelation this evening, they've looked at me like I'm about to engage in some kind of extreme sport. We're in dangerous territory. But Revelation wasn't written to cause uncertainty or confusion or even speculation. In fact, the objective is absolutely the opposite of that. Just notice how the book begins. Chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ. 
It's a revelation. The objective isn't to obscure or to confuse, but to reveal, to make clear what might otherwise not be clear. So what is it revealing? Well, we're told, firstly, verse 1, that it reveals what is about to take place. And in case we miss that, we see the same point again in verse 3. For the time is near, writes John. There's an urgency about what he's writing because something big is coming. And he wants us to know what it is. And we find out what it is in verse 7. Just look at that with me. Behold, he, that's Jesus, is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Revelation forewarns God's people about an imminent return, the return of Jesus Christ. Now, at the end of any major conflict, the arrival of victorious forces to a prisoner of war camp has two very different implications. So for the prisoners, the arrival of their allies is the arrival of their liberators. And and so seeing their rescuers results in great rejoicing and relief. But for those who've done the imprisoning, Well, the arrival of their victorious opponents signals that they're about to be held to account for what they've just done. So the reaction isn't one of rejoicing. It's of anything but. And that's the sense of the future that John points to in Revelation 1. The return he tells us about won't be cloak and dagger, he says. You won't miss it. Every eye will see him. And yet it will have different implications for different people. It will be a return, verses 5 and 6, of Jesus who loves his people, who has freed them by his blood. Jesus will return as a glorious saviour. And yet, verse 7, it will also result in wailing. Because although he will return as saviour of those who've trusted in him, he will also return in judgment on those who haven't. Jesus will return soon in glory and in judgment. Now let's take a step back for a moment and think about why it is that the churches John is writing to need to know this and to know it right out of the gate. Why does he tell them about Jesus' return? We'll just think of the example I mentioned a few moments ago of the prisoner of war in captivity. Imagine that a few weeks or months before the end of the war, the waiting prisoners are told that rescue is coming. It's not here yet, but sure as days, cast iron guarantee it's coming. Now, what kind of impact do you think that news would have on a prisoner of war? Well, it would help them to keep going, wouldn't it? Not to pack it in. And the idea is similar in Revelation 1. Remember, these churches are under pressure of various different kinds. And in fact, John has those pressures in mind, even in chapter 1. 
Just look on, if you have a Bible open in front of you, to verse 9 of Revelation chapter 1. Notice how John describes himself. I, John, your partner in the joy of the good news of Jesus. That isn't how he describes himself, is it? Look again, verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Isn't that a surprising way to describe yourself? A partner in tribulation and patient endurance. But the reason he does that is that both John and the churches to whom he's writing are experiencing tribulation. And in particular, John tells us, verse 9, that his tribulation is a result of exile. He's writing from the island of Patmos. And why is he there? On account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He's been persecuted for telling people about Jesus. And so if John and if the churches to whom he's writing are going to conquer, if they're going to remain faithful all the way to the end, well, it helps to know that Jesus is coming, that he's going to return. Knowing that will keep them going. Now, as we come to apply that to ourselves, I wonder if this is something that we give much thought to as Christians, the fact that Jesus will return and will return soon. Let me ask you to think back over your past week, for example. Have you considered the fact that Jesus might return on any day or any hour over the past week? Well, if not, if you haven't thought this week on the fact that Jesus will return and that he'll return soon, then I think you're robbing yourself. You're robbing yourself of one of the resources that God has given you to keep going amid the tribulations of the Christian life. So very practically, if and when you feel under the cosh as a Christian, maybe not the threat of imprisonment or exile or death that John's first reader faced, but perhaps persecution of the death by a thousand cuts kind that being a Christian in Scotland in the 21st century might bring. Being regularly undermined, made to feel like a superstitious fool, portrayed as a bigot, told and told time and time again that you're standing on the wrong side of history, whether by national media or by friends or by family. If that's you, God says, remember what's to come. Or when you feel the temptation to capitulate morally, to throw in the towel in the Christian life, because frankly, it would be easier and maybe even more fun to do what everyone else around you is doing. Well, God says, remember the things that are to come. Jesus will return. He will return as your glorious and gracious Savior. He will return as judge of those who've rejected him. And it'll happen soon. And listen, if it was to happen soon for the churches in the first century, then sure as guns it's soon to happen for us. So keep going. Remain faithful. Be one who conquers 
That's the first of the things that are to come, of the future events that's revealed for us in the book of Revelation. Jesus will return soon in glory and in judgment. And the second half of the chapter gives us a snapshot, not of things that are to come, but of things as they are, as they really are. And we'll look at that under our next heading. Jesus will return soon in glory and in judgment, and he is the awesome death-defeating God, verses 9 to 20. Now, as we turn to look at the second half of Revelation 1, let me ask you, what is your Jesus like? What is your Jesus like? Now, that might be a slightly misleading question. It might sound like I'm suggesting that everyone has a different Jesus, as though he's just a figment of our imagination who we can kind of mold into whatever image we want him to be in. And that, of course, isn't the case. He is a real person. He doesn't change. And yet my understanding of who he is might. Perhaps when you think of Jesus, you think immediately of the stained glass window or of the slightly dodgy movies about Jesus made in the 70s and 80s. Pale skin, long blonde wavy hair, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Perhaps that's the only category you have for Jesus. Well, I want you to look again at Revelation 1, and we'll read a little bit of it together again. Verse 13 and following, just read that with me. John writes, in the midst of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Now, how is that for gentle Jesus, meek and mild? The language is meant to convey that what John sees is an awesome, awesome sight, in the truest word of the sense, awesome. It's breathtaking. but it's meant to convey more than that. Because it's worth noting that the images used to describe him aren't completely new. Robin helpfully read for us earlier from Daniel chapter 7 in the Old Testament. Uh, and in Daniel 7, we're introduced to someone who's called the Ancient of Days, who we find out is, is God the Father. And he sits on a throne, we read in Daniel 7, as the reigning king of the universe. And I wonder if you noticed the parallels, the similarities between that description of the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7 and John's description of Jesus Christ in Revelation 1. White hair like wool, fire, majesty. See, the point in Revelation 1 isn't just that Jesus is terrifying and majestic and wonderful looking, although he is. The point is that he carries all of the weight, all of the majesty and glory of the reigning God of the universe. It's meant to be breathtaking. And after catching sight of that incredible view of Jesus, John is blown away. So much so that he falls on his face as though dead. 
And in response, verse 17, Jesus puts a hand on his shoulder. Fear not, he says. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus has authority over death itself. And so when you put all of that together, the Jesus whom John sees is the all-powerful, eternal, death-defeating, reigning God. So let me ask you, how does that sit with your category for Jesus, with your understanding of who he is? Let me be honest for a moment, it's blown mine out of the water this week as I've been thinking and praying about it. And yet there's one more detail. And that detail sharpens how we are to understand these verses. Because John's eye isn't just on who Jesus is, it's on where Jesus is. Just look with me at verse 13. Jesus is, says John, in the midst of the lampstands. What does that mean? Well, as we read on, verse 20, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Jesus is in the midst of the churches. Now, last year, um, we took our little boy to see a show during the festival. It was Dr. Seuss's The Cat in the hat. Uh, and if I'm honest, I think it's probably the most exhausting thing that I've ever done whilst sitting down. It was just a sensory overload. There was so much going on with the colours and the costumes and the throwing and the shouting and the banging and the banging and the banging. I, I know it's, it was fun. It all felt pretty chaotic, if I'm honest, and a little bit half ha haphazard. It, and after the show, I met a friend uh, who is an actor and who works in children's theatre. And he happened to have been at the same show with his little girl. And when I told him that I thought it had all been a bit chaotic, he said, no, that, that, that kind of show doesn't just happen by accident. That wasn't haphazard. That was really well choreographed. And they must have worked so hard to get those timings right. And of course, he knew far better what he just watched than I did because he knew what was going on behind the scenes, behind the curtain. He knew the precision needed to keep things running to time for one person to arrive at just the right time to catch what had been thrown by someone else. And it's that kind of perspective that we're given in Revelation 1. See, churches, not least the seven churches to whom John was writing, look weak and fragile and vulnerable. And it looks like we're on our own. Our faith as individual Christians looks weak and fragile and vulnerable, and it looks often like we're on our own. But John is peeling the curtain back on physical realities as we see them. And he's showing us what's going on spiritually, behind the scenes. The resurrected Jesus, who is glorious and incomparably wonderful, who holds the keys of death 
and Hades, this powerful, almighty God of the universe, Jesus, is in the midst of his churches. And that means he can say to each of the seven churches in chapters two and three, with absolute authority and absolute confidence, I know. I know what's going on with you. I see the pressures that you're facing. I understand. I see the temptations to pack it in. I know that you've stumbled in your faithfulness. That hasn't escaped my sight either. Now, can you see why that might be a help to a first century church to stay the course? A church facing persecution, a church in danger of drift, looking and feeling weak and fragile. Church in Ephesus, church in Smyrna, church in Philadelphia, this is your Jesus and he's in your midst. He knows what's going on. And actually, as a church in 21st century Scotland, can you see why that should be a help to us too? Should help us to stay the course. We might not be facing imprisonment for being faithful to Jesus in this country, at least not yet. But when remaining faithful to Jesus means being branded, I guess, old-fashioned and superstitious at best, or bigoted, might we not be tempted to pack it in? It's a slow war of attrition. Well, if and when you are, allow Revelation 1 to peel back the curtain on what's really going on what is going on now, behind the scenes, and what is to come. Even when your faith looks, and, uh, faith looks and feels pretty weak, and it looks and feels like you're on your own, this almighty Jesus is in the midst of his people, and he knows what you face. Now, that is a comfort, isn't it? I mean, but it's also a challenge. And it means there is something that we should do in response to all of that. And we're going to think about that briefly under our last heading this evening. Listen to Jesus and keep his words. Just look back with me to verse 3 of Revelation chapter 1. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. One of the big applications of Revelation 1 is that we are to listen to this book, listen to this prophecy, and to obey it. And so as we near a close, let me ask you, does Jesus have the right to speak to you? See, it's fair to say that later in the book of Revelation, the kinds of images used are ones that we aren't all that familiar with. We'll see that next week even in chapter 4. And so we might shy away from reading Revelation. It just isn't for me. But think back over what we've considered in Revelation 1. The Jesus whose revelation this is will return soon as glorious saviour and as judge. The Jesus whose revelation this is is the majestic death defeating God. The Jesus whose revelation this is, that majestic Jesus is in the midst of his churches. He knows the tribulations we face. So let me ask you again, does Jesus, as he appears before us in Revelation 1, have the right to speak to you? 
answer a resounding yes. So for goodness sake, listen to him. Listen to what he tells us in Revelation about what is and what is to come. Not least the fact that he's coming back soon. Don't let us behave as though our Bibles finish at the end of the book of Jude. Read Revelation. Listen to him and obey him. Because he's, he's not out to steal from you. He's not out to confuse you. He is out to give you what you need to know in order to overcome. Listen to him. Now, as we close, if you're joining us this evening and you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian, firstly, can I say how pleased I am that you've tuned in? And I really do mean that. Really, really pleased that you've tuned in this evening. But I wonder what you've thought of all that we've considered over the past few minutes. It might well have confirmed your suspicions that Christians are part of a lunatic fringe waiting for the return of their Lord. Well, can I please just say, before you dismiss what you've heard, I want you to notice that what's described in Revelation 1, well, it may well sound remarkable to us, we can have confidence that it isn't a fairy tale. Because something else that you might otherwise dismiss as fiction, as remarkable, as a fairy tale, it has already happened in time and space history. Just look down to verse 18 again with me. Jesus says, I died and am alive forevermore. The historical, physical resurrection of Jesus Christ is proof that he has defeated death. Listen, if the resurrection really happened, then you have to take what he says seriously when he claims to hold the keys of death, when he claims to be God himself, when he claims that he will return to save and to judge. And so at the very least, can I encourage you to find out more about him? Maybe even come to the Read Mark studies. Look at one of the eyewitness accounts of his life, death and resurrection. But whatever you do, don't dismiss him without even engaging with him. Because if he is who he says he is, then he is the God of the universe. And he's coming again soon. Listen to him. Let me pray. Our God and Father, we thank you and praise you that you have not left us in the dark, but you've revealed for us everything we need to know to keep us going, things that are and things that are to come. We know that you will return in glory and in judgment. We know that you are supreme, the majestic and death-defeating King Lord Jesus. And we know that you know that you're in the midst of your church, even churches like Chalmers. And so we ask, Father God, that you would please help us to listen to you, to listen to this revelation. And would you please help us to keep these words, to take them to heart, to obey them, and so to remain faithful to you, even amidst tribulation. We ask all of this in the name of the majestic, 
death-defeating, imminent to return, Saviour and King, Jesus Christ, and for his sake. Amen.